turn in our Bibles once again back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 30 this evening as we continue our journey through Isaiah's prophecy together. Last time in Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 30, we went down as far as verse 21 there in chapter 30. And as we came to that section in chapter 30, again, uh, the beginning of the chapter, it seems that God was really reproving uh, his people regarding their rebellion against him, and he was calling them uh, to task in regards to that woe to the rebellious children, he said at the beginning of the chapter, who were taking counsel, but not of him, and were going down to Egypt for help rather than relying upon and depending upon the Lord and the ultimate outcome, the bad consequences that would come as the result of their rebellion, but yet God speaking to them as well, how he was longing for them to return to him. In fact, he even said there in verse 18 that the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And again, though they had been rebellious, though they had turned away from the Lord, God was waiting for them to return. Uh, he was not only allowing them to return, he was anxiously waiting, almost like the father in the prodigal son story in the New Testament, who went running out to his son to greet him because he was so enthusiastic when his son finally repented and, it says, came to his senses and came back home uh, into right relationship with his father. And of course, we know that's a picture uh, of God's heart there, that father in the Jewish culture, doing that. And uh, here we read of God just literally waiting, it says, to be gracious to those who've been rebellious, that he may be exalted in the fact that he shows mercy in the midst of our bad decisions or how his people, Israel, had wandered away from him and rebelled. And as we came into these next verses that we're looking at, as we kind of left off last time in verse 21, God seems to have then turned and now the Spirit of God through Isaiah seems to be speaking about God's restoration and how the Spirit of God moved among them and would move upon them in such a way that their hearts, when God's Spirit was poured out, would turn back towards Him. And the result that that would bring, how they once again uh, would find themselves hearing clearly from the Lord that a time of adversity and difficulty would move away and that once again they would begin to hear God's voice clearly They'd begin receiving God's direction and, and knowing what God was saying to them and responding to that. In verse 22, where we pick it up here, he seems to be picturing uh, repentance and what repentance looks like. He says, verse 22 of chapter 30, you will also defile the covering of your images of silver. And of course, here he's referring to idols that they would make, that they would bow down to as they would worship other gods, as at times was part of the rebellion. That was a chronic problem with Israel, that God had to deal with them regarding idolatry and worshiping other gods. And the ornament of your molded images of gold, and he says, verse 22, <clears throat> you will throw them away as an unclean thing, and you will say to them, the idea there is emphatic, get away. In other words, get away from me. I'm done with you. I want nothing more to do with you whatsoever. And of course, the picture there in verse 22 is how when God's spirit moved among his people, that there would be this powerful act of repentance. And again, repentance, remember, speaks of a change of mind or a change of one's way of thinking that results in a change of behavior. Uh, and you can tell when genuine repentance has happened, not because someone talks about repentance, but someone walks out their repentance where they have such a change of mind about what they were once doing, whether it was bowing down to these different gods that they created, these images of silver and gold and the worship of these pagan gods, uh, or whether it's anything else that we find ourselves doing wrong, some sinful behavior, some practice that's immoral, some attitude that's sinful that we're nursing in our life, that we come to a place where in repentance we realize, look, what I have been doing, that's wrong. And I don't know why I was thinking that was right or thinking that it was acceptable or allowable or that somehow I could do this and abuse God's grace and that was excusable, we come to a place where we recognize in our mind that is completely errant, it is wrong, no justification, no rationalizations, it's just completely 100% errant, it's selfish, I'm wrong, it needs to stop. And when we come to a recollection of that understanding that that then causes us to take that change of mind serious enough where we literally say, I've been going north, 
and I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go south now. Again, when we repent, we return away from something and we turn to something else. We turn from the sin, from the wrong behavior, and we turn back to God in the other direction. And often that is seen in very drastic acts. And you can tell when the Spirit of God had moved upon his people, he describes there how literally they would take their images, these little molded statues and things they would make as a part of their idolatry, and God said, you will throw them away. And again, I want you to take notice. What are the images made of? It's in the text there. Silver and gold, right? It wasn't like these things were made of paper mache. This was silver and gold. These were expensive. This was expensive. In other words, value, money. There's a degree of wealth tied up in the things that they were doing wrong. But because they were so serious about getting right with God, they literally were throwing away gold and silver. They were throwing away money. They didn't say, well, maybe we could melt the gold down and use it in a different... No, they just said, you know what? This is representative of sin, rebellion against God, living wrongly. I don't care how much value this has. Throw it in the trash. Get away from it. I don't want anything to do with it. They said, you know, get away. And I tell you, you can tell when people are serious about getting right with God when they don't care what it costs to repent, that someone can become so serious that if their problem is an electronic device or a computer, they would rather throw the whole stinking thing in the trash can than continue in their struggles with sin. And a lot of times it's that very radical approach where someone says, hey, that's the case. Again, if you got an issue with substance abuse or drugs, you don't go, well, I mean, I could sell all these drugs and donate it to the church or no, just throw it out, flush it down. But that's hundreds of dollars worth of pot there, man. Right. I don't care. I don't want to ruin someone else's life either. I don't care how much money is tied up in it. Whatever the cost is, I'm willing to bear the cost because there's a seriousness about repentance where the value and cost doesn't matter. And again, that's an indication oftentimes of, again, remember what Jesus spoke about when he said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. He said, if you're arm or your hands getting you in trouble, cut it off. Uh, and again, was Jesus literally endorsing that somehow that was going to solve the problem? Well, you, if you got a lust problem, poke out one of your eyes, then you'll just be a one-eyed luster. You could poke out both of your eyes and your imagination. You'll be a blind luster. The point Jesus was making was doing something radical. Cut it off. Whatever it takes, get radical. I mean, that'd be a radical thing to pluck out one of your eyes or cut off one of your arms. But Jesus was just emphasizing, look, whatever you got to do to cut off the opportunity, to cut off the ability to keep doing such. And again, if they cast these things away and threw them away, they would not be able to bow down to them again. And that's the idea of making no provision for the flesh, getting rid of what's a problem, separating yourself from it because you want to completely get away from what's been holding you in a rebellious condition. This is what they were doing as they were repenting. It's described there. Verse 23 says, and then he will give them rain, will give the rain, excuse me, for your seed. You have to wonder perhaps if God's saying, listen, the reason why things weren't flourishing and I wasn't giving you rain for your seed and why I was making it difficult and things weren't productive was God was saying, I'm trying to get your attention. I don't think God wants to bless and encourage and cause to flourish lives when they're living outside of his will because then people get the wrong idea. And that's a really bad mistake to think, oh, well, I mean, everything seems to be going well, so God must be okay with me living in error. So perhaps sometimes what God does do is he says, okay, well, I'm going to pull back the rain. I'm going to pull back the blessing. I'm going to do what I can to make adversity and difficulty be some of the things that cause us to come to attention because he doesn't want us to think he's blessing our acts of rebellion. So he says, again, they've repented. Now, then I will give the rain for the seed, which will sow to the ground and the bread of increase of the earth. Notice God's now bringing restoration. He's causing them to flourish. His people, once again, it will be fat and plentiful in the day that your cattle will feed in large pastures. So again, God's restoring prosperity. He's restoring back to, restoring back to them their their fields flourishing, their flocks and their herds multiplying once again as the favor of the Lord came back upon their lives. Like the oxen and the young, he says, donkeys, 
that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and the fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every hill rivers and streams of waters in that day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. And then verse 26, he describes, notice here, the, the, again, the, the multiplication, the, the flourishing of light, the abundance of light that would flood in verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. In other words, increased light. God would multiply the brightness of the moon. He would add increased light. He then goes on to say, in the light of the sun will be sevenfold. In other words, multiplied sevenfold in its brightness as the light of seven days in that day. And again, now we seem to, again, as in that day, it seems he's clearly taking us out to a, a day further down than the present day in that day, looking down into the future, that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wounds. So again, he describes here God's abundant blessing, bringing restoration not only to nature, making things prosper, but even this increase of light. And notice, this will be a time, he describes, a time of great healing where God will heal the wounds of his people. I love the way he describes there at the end of verse 26 that in that day, the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and he heals the stroke of their wound. What a, a fitting picture, because if there's one thing that sin does beyond just displease God and dishonor God, it destroys lives. And that's one of the reasons that God wants us not to sin, not just because it displeases him, not just because it disrespects or dishonors God and his holiness and his righteous ways. God loves people. And God doesn't want us to ruin our lives and to bring pain and hardship and wounds upon ourselves. And when we live outside of God's design or we begin to walk outside of God's will, the unfortunate thing is we bring self-inflicted wounds into our lives. We harm ourselves. We bring pain and problems and difficulties and hardships. And sin is a destructive thing. And because of it, at times when we live outside of God's will, as Israel at times lived outside of God's will, they would end up with, as he describes here, wounds, bruises, wounds in their lives that were the direct result of their sin when they turned against God and were living outside of his plan for their life. But the wonderful thing is that God desires to bring healing and God can bring healing. And we see God describing this and encourage you to jot your notes, Hosea chapter 5 and 6 are some great chapters that describe God bringing healing to his people after times of rebellion. I'll read you just a portion of it. Hosea chapter 5, the end of it into 6 says, God says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face and in their affliction, in their pain, their affliction, they'll earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, they say, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know and pursue the knowledge of the Lord and his going forth as the morning will come to us as the rain. Again, does God allow us to experience pain, affliction, hardship? When we err and we go outside of his plan, yeah. And a lot of that is self-inflicted pain and consequences we bring in our lives. The wonderful thing is that when we turn back to the Lord, he's waiting to be gracious and to forgive and even that to heal. And, and to heal up the pain and the wounds that we inflict upon ourselves. I love Jeremiah 30 where there God says, I will restore health to you and heal your wounds, says the Lord. And you know what? Some of you may know that reality in your life of having taken a detour outside of God's will, done some things that were sinful and wrong and unhealthy, and the pain that it brought into your life, the wounds that you incurred mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even maybe physically, and to know that God's not just willing to forgive, but he's willing to heal. And he's willing to bind up those wounds and restore and set your life back on track. How wonderful he is in his mercy in that way. Verse 27, God says, behold, the name of the Lord, excuse me, Isaiah, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, 
and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations. Now, I want you to take, take notice of that phrase. You should want to strike it or under, to sift the nations. This section is talking about God's response to the nations. We may look at that and think, well, wait a minute, <laughs> prior verses, he's like, I'm going to restore blessing and prosperity to your flocks and your herds and your fields are going to flourish again and I'm going to heal all your wounds. And then the next verse, thinking now all of a sudden he's ready to smoke people with his fiery breath. Wow, that guy got a quick, well, what God's saying here, notice, to sift the nations. He's not talking about his people here in these verses. Contextually, he's pronouncing here what he would do Thereby, it says, they shall bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err. Again, what God is speaking about here in verses 27 and 28 is him coming to the aid of his children and defending them in their vulnerability. Because God knew one of the primary things that often caused his children to err were the pagan people around them who would persuade them to worship their gods, to lead them into idolatry, that when they came against them... And they attack them and they would you know, introduce to them their Assyrian ways or their Babylonian ways. And so here God's speaking of coming to the aid and defending his children and dealing with their enemies very, very severely. I mean, talk about the, the uh, language that God uses there. You don't want to mess with God's children. You know, the, the father figure of God here, he says, the name of the Lord comes from far, burning with his anger and his burden, the idea is his burden of anger because of what's been done to his children, it's a heavy burden, his lips full of indignation, his tongue like a devouring fire, his breath like an overflowing stream reaching up to the neck to sift the nations because of what they have done to his people. He goes on, verse 29, to say to his people now back addressing them, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept. So he's likening their rejoicing, they're celebrating, they're singing here, having a song, a celebration, one of their festivals or their feast days, as in the night when they're celebrating a holy festival, and gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. So he describes in verse 29 there, God's people will celebrate when they see God dealing with their enemies. They'll be rejoicing when they see the power of God dealing with their enemies on their behalf, that they didn't need to deal with their enemies. They didn't need to seek revenge or retribution. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And that when God's children were able to look at God dealing with his power with their enemies, coming to their defense, solving their problems, he says, the people of God will begin to celebrate like one of the festival days. Gladness will come into their heart as they see the fatherly care of God protecting them, defending. Verse 30, he says, and the Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger. The idea is like the flexed arm of God, you know, flexing his muscle, the, the descent of his strong arm, exercising the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. Notice verse 31, for through the voice of the Lord, Assyria, that was who was threatening, remember, Judah at this time, the southern kingdom, it was the Assyrians who had wreaked havoc on the northern kingdom and then they came down and they began to do the same in the south. And then ultimately they, in the days of Hezekiah, set up siege around the city of Jerusalem. So the Assyrians were their chronic enemy at this time. It was who was threatening them and bringing great harm. And he says, for through the voice of the Lord, Assyria, God uses clear language, will be beaten down <laughs> as he strikes with the rod and in every place the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, lays on Assyria. It will be with tambourines and harps, and in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. So take notice, verse 30 to 32. Notice the, the repeated 
uh, phrase there. I have it underlined both times in my Bible there. Verse 30, the Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard. Again, verse 31, through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down. Do you notice all God needs to do is just say the word and it's done. Just the voice of the Lord, the power of the voice of the Lord is more than sufficient. All he needs to do is speak the word and declare it, and it will be done in one act because he has that kind of power. He has that kind of authority. And he says here that through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down. Now, when we get a few chapters further along and we get one of three historical records of how God dealt with the Assyrians, remember, and drove them away, though they had surrounded the city. Technically, that was the voice of the Lord alone, because we remember, we've talked about it numerous times, it keeps applying in the book of Isaiah, that God sends an angel to go in one night, and he deals with 185,000 Assyrian troops and gets rid of them all instantaneously. And God just tells one angel, go deal with that, Bob. Just, just, just take care of that army. Just eliminate that army, take care of my people, drive them away. And just by speaking the word, God's voice can completely eliminate a problem, a situation. He can turn the tables on something. He can subdue and stop a person. He can stop an entire nation. God drove away a whole army with just one spoken word. He just commands it and it comes to pass. Man, how wonderful to realize that that is the God who is our father, who's our defender, who's our protector. That's the God, folks, that we have the privilege to pray to or that we in errantness don't bother praying to and then we complain about all of our problems and we tell everybody else about all of our problems. But the amazing thing is, is we have the privilege to speak with our voice to a God who could say, if you weren't telling everybody else and you would just pray and ask me, all I got to do is speak the word. And with power, I can bring change into the situation. And you know, what a great reminder that this is the God who protects us and can help us and the God who waits to hear our voice so that he can speak the word and bring change in situations. You know, we do have to wonder sometimes if part of the reason why at times we don't see God do things isn't the problem on God's end. If maybe the problem is on our end and, and that, you know, God says what? You have not because you ask not. Because all he's got to do is speak his voice. He can drive away an enemy. He can stop a major problem instantaneously if it's part of his plan. And God says with the voice of the Lord, he would beat down Assyria and he would deal with them. And even their king, he would drive them back. Verse 33 culminates with the Lord doing this. It says, for Tophet, verse 33, was established of old. Uh, and this reference is, is an area, what we know better as the, the Valley of Hinnom, ultimately the area of Gehenna that we know more of in the days of Jesus. He says, for Tophet, Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, was established of old. Yes, for the king, now there in the most literal sense is probably referring to the king of Assyria, but I believe there's something further out that's being described here. Yes, for the king it is prepared, he has made it deep and large, God, the idea is speaking here, God made this area deep and large, this valley, its pyre is fire with much wood, and the breath of the Lord is like a stream of brimstone kindles it. So he describes this area, the Valley of Hinnom, again, as we know that name a little bit more clearly, that was a valley that ultimately became the territory in the days of Israel that they ultimately used as a garbage dump area and where they would burn their garbage at. So it became an area that was known, became Gehenna, the Valley of Gehenna in Jesus's day, that was a territory where it was ultimately always kind of burning, always smoking. There were chronic fires there. It's where their garbage was put. It was just a gross place where the fire was always burning. It was a miserable place. Nobody wanted to go Gehenna. And here he describes the sentence, notice, of this evil king, that the sentence of this evil king who had harmed God's people, that he was going to be judged in this valley of fire, and that it was the Lord himself by his breath that was going to kindle this fire, 
And he says, for this king, this wicked king of Assyria, this place of fire and misery was prepared. It was prepared for him to ultimately be judged there. Now, I think when I read that, it likely also pictures much beyond what was happening historically, the eternal punishment that's awaiting a more evil king, and that's Satan himself. Again, it is interesting that this area of Tophet or the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Gehenna, in the days of Jesus, that area was the area that became then referred to as Hades or the place of hell, the place of perpetual burning. And they would look upon that place as symbolic of the fires of hell. And as Jesus referred to that, even in Matthew chapter 25, as Jesus was speaking, Jesus spoke of a place of everlasting fire. And interestingly enough, Jesus said that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so here as we read of this area for the king that is prepared, I no doubt think of the more evil king, the worst king of all, the ruler of all evil, the devil himself. There's a place prepared for him that's deep and large, and the breath of the Lord is kindled a fire there. And that is the place ultimately where he will be cast into what we know as the lake of fire, where he'll be there forever. But again, notice that Jesus talks about that that place really was never in the heart of God prepared for human beings. He says it's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. There's only two options. If somebody does not want to go to heaven and they don't want to be with God eternally, human beings have eternal souls. A person's eternal spirit and soul must go somewhere. And so if someone does not want to go into glory and be with God forever, there's only one other option, and that is to be put into the lake of fire. But that place was prepared for the devil and his angels, for punishment and torment, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the fire is not quenched. It was not really prepared for humanity. But sadly, it is where humanity will go if they reject Jesus Christ because there is no other option for them. And it's a tragedy that some will go there because of their rejection of Christ. Well, chapter 31, he comes back to, again, speaking to his people once again, it seems, reproving them, which is interesting because he did it in chapter 30, and it almost sounds very repetitious. He comes back to this same problem that was going on among Israel and Judah at this time. He says, chapter 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. And again, remember the horses were basically like the you know, the, the tanks uh, and the jeeps, they were the, they were the military vehicles of that day to accomplish warfare, the strength of the horse who trust in the chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Now, we talked about this in chapter 30. The problem here, again, the word woe speaks of be warned, this is dangerous, and he comes back to the same idea indicating what had happened where when the Assyrians were encroaching upon them, causing them to be fearful, and it looked like they were going to be defeated, rather than rely upon the Lord, rather than seek God for direction, rather than go to the Holy One of Israel and look to the Holy One of Israel and seek the Lord for his help, his deliverance, his protection, and ask for the power of God to intervene as their protector and their helper and their deliverer, they did what was logical. They looked and they assessed and they saw what was out there available in the world system in Egypt. And Egypt had, as is described here, a lot of horses and a lot of chariots. It says their horses and chariots were many. Their horses and chariots were very strong. They had a strong military. So they decided, look, the smartest thing to do is we need to utilize that resource out there in the world. That's the answer to our problem. And so they look to the world for their solution. They look to a fleshly resource that was very logical. It made all logical sense. Nobody would have questioned what they were doing, but God did. Because God said, I don't want my people turning to the world to solve their problems. I want my people to turn to me, to let me resolve their problems. And when we have no father in heaven, we know nothing different. We do what's logical. We do what is pragmatic and what just seems to make the most sense. 
But when God is our father, he wants us to look to him and to seek him. And God, I don't believe, wants his people, depending upon systems of the world or the resources of the world or the ways of the world, and looking as those worldly resources as how to take care of our situations. And we're always erring. Remember in chapter 30, he said that when we do that, we're actually, he says, being a rebellious people. God called us people rebellious for going to Egypt, going to the world to solve their problems. And we may not want to think of that as rebellious, but there are times where perhaps we are going to the world and God says, by you going to the world to try and deal with your situation or solve your problem, you're rebelling against me. You're not depending upon me. You're not trusting me. You're not asking me to intervene or letting me work and take care of the situation. And here he describes again how they were going down to Egypt for help. And, you know, perhaps at times it's good to evaluate. Is it possible that in some way that's what you're doing? Maybe you need help in a situation, but are you going to the world for help? And are you going to the world for its resources and its solutions? Or are you going to God for his help? Are you relying on the world for help? Or are you relying upon the Lord? Interesting, he says, verse 2, regarding God, he says, they go to Egypt, but they don't look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Verse 2, he says, yet he, referring God, also is wise and will bring disaster. In other words, what Isaiah is saying there is, he's a, you think Egypt's got a lot to offer. God's pretty wise too, Isaiah is saying. He himself is also wise. And even as the Egyptian army they thought would bring disaster and defeat, he says God can bring disaster too if he needs to. God can take care of things just as well, he says, and, and will not call back his words. In other words, when he speaks it, again, I just read this morning in my devotions that the very God who promises has the power to fulfill. That's the wonderful thing about God is that God not only speaks something, God actually can back it up. And the world can't always do that. We can't always do that. But anything God promises, he's got all the power and the resources and the authority to bring it to pass. And so when God speaks a word or a promise, he won't call back his words, but will arise against the house, he says, verse 2, of evildoers, and against the help of those who work iniquity, Verse 3, he says, now the Egyptians, they're men. In other words, they're, they're, there's nothing different about them than you, God says. You're turning to an equal. How's that going to help? He says, they're just men. They're not God. And they're horses. They may look impressive, but God says they're flesh. They're not spirit. In other words, it's using carnal weapons to solve spiritual issues. And God says, they're fleshly. They're not of the spirit realm. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall and he who is helped will fall down. The idea is they will both be humbled and perish together. For thus the Lord has spoken to me, verse 4, as a lion roars and a young lion over his prey when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him. Now, this is a picture of the lion here. He will not be afraid of their voice. Again, the picture here is of a ferocious, strong lion and a bunch of shepherds trying to intimidate the lion. And he says, that lion is not going to be afraid of, of the voice of human men trying to corral him like shepherds do sheep. That lion won't be intimidated at all. He won't be afraid of their voice, nor be disturbed by their noise. So, in like manner, the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion. Again, that's for Jerusalem. He'll come down to fight for them. Take note of that. That should always be remembered whenever conflicts start over there in Israel. The Lord will come down to fight for his people and for its hill. Like the birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending it, he will also deliver it, passing over it, he will also preserve it. So verses 4 and 5, they're described really God like a protective father, coming to the defense, intensely preserving the welfare of his people with great passion in doing such, like a very protective father figure. He pictures there God in, in verse 4, kind of like uh, the authoritative power of a mighty lion, as we just mentioned a moment ago, and a mighty lion again, fears no one. 
And he's saying, God, like a mighty lion, like the lion of the tribe of Judah, it doesn't matter who the enemy is against his people. It doesn't matter how threatening they may seem on a human level. To God, it's like a mighty lion not being intimidated by the voice of a human shepherd saying, now calm down, boy. And, and, and the lion just you know, completely just ignoring the shepherd. And he says, God is like a mighty lion. He fears no one. And verse 5, he pictures God there in his protection, kind of like the protective nature of birds hovering over a nest. And how God hovers like a, like a mother bird over its nest, paying attention, flying about. And he says, so the Lord of hosts, like a hovering protective mother bird, he says, when he sees his people have need, when he sees his people are threatened, or their welfare is in jeopardy, or they need protection or intervention, he will swoop down in his power like a motherly bird. And the Lord of hosts, he says, will defend Jerusalem, defending it, he will deliver it, passing over it. He will preserve it. Notice God gets engaged in military conflict at times. You know, I encourage you, just whether you look up some YouTube videos, Amir Sarfati did two great videos, a part one and a part two, on the battles of the nation of Israel and what happened with their history and, and the incredible things that were clearly evidence that there was supernatural intervention in the different times there has been conflict and battles and warfare with the Jews and in the nation of Israel, where even what we read here, where the Lord came down and he fought for Mount Zion and its hill, and he defended Jerusalem, and he delivered and preserved the land and preserved his people. I mean, amazing that God has done this in history. And look, God hasn't changed. And we should be praying for and believing God is going to be doing very similar things once again. Ezekiel 36, 37, 38 describe how when that ultimate battle happens, when no one comes to Israel's aid and everybody turns their back against Israel, that it will be God himself who will directly intervene and will miraculously come to the rescue of his people, even when that great last days battle happens as well. Verse 6, God says to his people, calling them back to him again, return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. And again, God emphasizes they had deeply revolted, not just slightly deeply revolted, but what does God say? Return, return. I love Jeremiah 3. God there says repeatedly, return, return, you backsliding children, and I'll heal your backslidings. That is always the word of the Lord when someone turns away from God, when someone rebels, when someone revolts. God is always in his mercy giving that invitation, exhorting, return, come back. I don't want you to stay out there. Return back to me. I know you've deeply revolted. And see, that's important because sometimes when we deeply revolt or we see someone that deeply revolts, the devil wants us to believe, oh, that you've gone way too far. I mean, you've just, you've, you've deeply revolted. You've been so rebellious, you, you can't turn back. And God's saying, that's a lie. I always want you to return. God always wants us to come back. So he calls them to return, and he envisions their returning again and their repentance in verse 7. For in that day, he says, every man shall, this is very similar to our verse from earlier, shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. So again, he mercifully leaves the door open to return, and God envisions there in verse 7 the day when in sincere repentance, just like we saw earlier, doesn't matter if their idols were of silver and gold. Notice they're willing to forsake things that they once clung on to that were very valuable, that cost them a lot, but nothing was worth being in right relationship with God, and they were willing to cast aside those things of silver and gold, which were the avenues of their sin because they genuinely wanted to get back in right relationship with God. And then verses 8 and 9, he describes the historical throwing off of the Assyrians. Then Assyria shall fall by a sword, notice what the language says, not of man. So what does that say? It wasn't the military effort of the arm of flesh in Israel that got rid of the Assyrians. He says, Assyria shall fall by a sword, yes, but not the sword of a man. 
and a sword not of mankind shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Again, he's referring to those events. We'll see it in a few chapters. We've talked about it, where in that one night, not the sword of a man, but the sword of the Lord, at the voice of the Lord, one angel goes forth and deals with, again, a large, large Assyrian army, and, and at the sword of the Lord, they're defeated, and the rest of them return back and retreat in fear, and they pull away from their siege against the city. And again, it was a divine intervention that brought a military victory, and God brought deliverance for his people in one day. Chapter 32, he says, Behold, a king will reign, notice, will reign, now, that could be referring to one of the righteous kings that came to pass in Israel historically. Uh, but I think, again, ultimately, it speaks clearly further down of the one true king that everyone's waiting for that will come and truly reign in righteousness, and the princes will rule with justice. So I think, again, here, the Holy Spirit is reminding us of something down into the kingdom age where ultimately... There's coming a day when a king will reign in righteousness, and of course we know that's Jesus who will rule and reign in righteousness when he returns back to the earth and sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And for a thousand years, Christ will reign in righteousness. He will execute his righteousness and rule in such a way. And notice it says that princes in that time when the righteous reign of Christ is happening, princes will rule with justice. In other words, he will have people assisting him in his reign. Again, the Bible tells us when Paul's writing to Timothy that we as Christians shall reign with him. And we know that when Jesus returns back to the earth and rules and reigns as the righteous king in Jerusalem for a thousand years of the kingdom age, the Bible teaches that as his saints, we will return with him. And like princes ruling under him, helping administrate his righteous rulership, we will get to participate in that righteous reign of Christ in the time of the kingdom age or the millennium, that thousand-year reign of Christ. Verse 2, and he seems to describe some of the glory of this time period. A man will be a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of great rock in a weary land. So the result of this glorious time of the righteous reign of the King Jesus Christ, notice there'll be a tremendous change in the atmosphere. The hardships of journeying through a sinful world will begin to be unwound. He describes here in our verses there how there will be a shelter to escape from the harsh stormy conditions, he says, like a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest. That time will also be characterized, he says, as, again, metaphorically, rivers of water in a dry place. So it'll be a time characterized by satisfaction. There'll be a time of fulfillment after a period of human history that was misery, a time of refreshment that will be like quenching the thirst of a weary, thirsty traveler in a desert wilderness. It will be a time when there's great refreshment and a time of relief from hard circumstances he describes like the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And again, if you're traveling in a hot, arid area you know, and you're weary from your travels and you can find a big rock to find shade under, that's the idea there. It'll be a time of release and satisfaction and relief and refreshment that humanity has been yearning for, longing for after many, many centuries of the misery of sin and what it has done to the planet in that kingdom age. Verse 3, in the eyes of those who see will not be dim. So it'll be a time, the image there is people were no longer losing their focus. They're able to see clearly. And the ears of those who hear will listen. So humanity will have a renewed ability to listen, to hear the word of the Lord in a way whereby they're compliant. They don't just hear it, but they're actually listening. They want to hear the truth of God. Uh, as the, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, as we saw earlier in Isaiah. Verse 4, also the heart of the rash. The idea is the person who's making rash decisions, the impulsive person, 
The person who's making poor judgments because they're very rash in their responses. They're making quick, impulsive, rash decisions. He says, in that day, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge. So there he describes those prone to make impulsive decisions will now become thoughtful. And they'll be a little slow and they'll be more discerning. As again, they're following the Lord more closely. They'll be more thoughtful in their choices. A change in humanity. And the tongue of the stammerers, I'll be glad for this one, will be ready to speak plainly. <laughs> the idea is clearly. Those who struggle to communicate in a way to speak clearly that stumble with their words or stutter in their speech or feel like they have a stammering tongue and they can't you know, communicate efficiently what they want to say. He says there'll be a renewal and a healing where the tongue of the stammerer will finally be ready to speak plainly. They'll be able to speak clearly, again, to, to communicate clearly. How wonderful that will be in the kingdom age just to be able to, to communicate clearly. Imagine a time where there's never, again, a misunderstanding in a conversation. Wow, that sounds like the kingdom age right there. Where instead of struggling to communicate or misunderstanding because we didn't say it plainly, or everybody can just speak plainly, and it's all clear. And we never misunderstand one another. Boy, the marvels of what awaits us in so many different ways. He says in verse 5, And the foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and will cause the drink of the thirsty to fall, and also the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. Now we may say, what exactly is he referring to there? It seems to be that he's describing how one of the changes that will come in that day, as things are righteous and things are made right, is the foolish person, and the word foolish that's used there, Nabal in the Hebrew, literally refers to the one who's senseless in judgment or one who lacks moral integrity. And he's describing the person there who is basically giving a false image in their lack of moral integrity and their senseless judgments. They're giving a false image before people to portray themselves as this very kind, generous, giving person. You notice there in verse 5, he describes the foolish person will no longer be called generous, that is, by others. They'll no longer be recognized as being bountiful because what he's describing there, and this is just a reality, is it is possible for people to give an image of being a very generous person, and truth of the matter is they may not be a generous person at all. <laughs> they just give the image of being a very generous person. Remember that happened in the book of Acts chapter five, where people were coming and laying money the feet of the apostles to try and help the people in the early church when everybody came together and there was a lot of communal living going on there in Jerusalem. And uh, Ananias and Sapphira came and, and they had sold a plot of land and they pretended, remember they pretended like they gave all the proceeds of their sale in hypocrisy because they wanted to what? Appear like they were generous, like they were giving. And the Holy Spirit revealed it to Peter by a word of knowledge. And Peter said, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And again, was it an issue of that they were, and ultimately, remember, they were struck dead for that, for their hypocrisy. God made a point. And it wasn't God struck them dead because they didn't give their money. God doesn't need their money. They, did, they could have kept their land. Peter told them, you could have just kept the land. You should have just kept it, and you would have not been a hypocrite. But the fact they were trying to act like they were generous, their talk, their portrayal, they were, they were being a hypocrite, and they were trying to pretend they were something they really weren't. And there are people, sadly, who want to give the image that they're generous. They want to act like they you know, share so bountifully and that they do so much. And he says, in that day, when the Spirit of God is clearly working and power, he says, people won't get away with that kind of stuff anymore. Everybody will be seen for who they are, those who pretend in their hypocrisy to be something they're really not for a public show, just giving a false image. He says, it'll all become clear ultimately. 
and it'll be evident. You won't be able to, to fake, if you would, that false image of people will be exposed and the deception of pretenders will all of a sudden be something that is kind of revealed. They won't be called generous anymore. People realize you're not generous. You're actually a miser, man. <laughs> if you were generous, you could give a whole lot more than that, people will say. You're actually a cheapskate. You're acting like you're generous. You're talking a big game, but uh, you're not really generous at all. And God says in that day, people will be revealed when they're trying to be hypocrisy, you know, going on and they're pretending before others. He says, verse 6, that foolish person will just speak their foolishness. That is, they won't be able to hide it. They'll be known as a fool. God will just expose them for what they are, and their heart will do what they do, practicing ungodliness, uttering error, again, trying to pretend to be generous, but they're uttering error against the Lord, and they'll keep the hungry unsatisfied. The idea is the reality is they weren't really helping anybody anyway. They were pretending like they were helping people. They just wanted to be looking like someone who was you know, wealthy and generous and uh, people love image sometimes. He says, verse 7, the schemes of the schemer are evil. Again, what are schemes? Schemes are, are, are secretive, underhanded plans that people make. And I love how God's word has a way of, of just calling things very clearly with her. God says, some people are just, they're schemers. Let's, God says, let's just say it like it is. <laughs> they're schemers. They're working a scheme. The schemes of the schemer, he says, are evil. They're devising wicked plans, destroying the poor with their lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. Again, notice that's something what schemers do. They devise things and, uh, you know, they lie to people and they destroy those who are less fortunate rather than actually helping them. Verse 8, he says, but the generous man devises generous things, and by his generosity, he says, he will stand. So in contrast to those who are faking to be generous, who are just schemers and trying to maintain a, an image, in contrast, God says there are those who are truly generous, those who are sincerely trying to be giving that they are in their generosity, not just in a public image trying to behave like they're generous or act before people like they're this giving sacrificial person, but God says there genuinely are people who are generous individuals. He says the generous man is devising generous things. In other words, they're sincerely looking for ways to exercise generosity, to help people, to use their money to bless people, to do generous things, to give sacrificially and taking a firm stand, he says, exercising their generosity, doing it in faith, doing it in sacrificial giving, and saying, you know what, I'm going to take a stand in my generosity, and I don't care whether I'm known for it or not known for it, I believe God wants me to be generous. I believe God wants me to give. I believe God wants me to share. And he says it's a beautiful thing when a generous man is generously devising ways to stand in that spirit of generosity and to try and let that be a way that God uses them in their life to you know, dispatch their resources or to share or to give in ways where they can generously help and do things for good. He says, verse 9, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a year and some days you will be troubled, you complacent women, the gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves. The idea is strip yourselves of the fancy robes and the elaborate garments they would be wearing in their ease and their prosperity, the luxury. He says, strip yourselves of those things and make yourselves bare and gird sackcloth on your way. So again, the women in the land in that day were guilty. He describes there numerous times of becoming complacent, which the idea describes apathetic, uh, you know, lazy. They're, they're not caring anymore. And notice what it calls it. He says they had become complacent because of a time of ease. The idea is they were experiencing luxury and prosperity. And because they had ease circumstantially, it had caused them to become complacent spiritually. And they had become numb, if you would, and they didn't really care because they were so consumed in their own life of ease and luxury and prosperity. And yet God is describing here that there was coming a time period when he was going to allow circumstances to shake up their ease. And God's describing here, prepare yourself. He says, for in a year and some days, he says, trouble is going to arise. 
And your circumstances are going to go from ease and easy to hard. And it's not going to be a life of ease. And it's not going to be a life of luxury. And God says you're going to find yourself in a time of difficulty and hardship where that complacent spirit would be stirred up in a way where they would recognize in their hardship and their difficulty, man, we've become complacent in our ease. And we've really kind of just regressed into this complacent attitude. And here God was reproving them of this, bringing it to their attention that he was going to shake them out of that complacency. And sometimes God will allow circumstances to bring that process to pass where maybe if ease has lulled us to sleep and made us complacent, God will do what it takes sometimes to shake that ease in our circumstances and get us out of our complacency. He says, verse 12, people shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields and the fruitful vine, and on the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, notice he's describing how this will happen, on all the happy homes in the joyous city because of the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become lairs forever, and a joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. Notice the time was coming, God says, when circumstances would become difficult. And when those circumstances became difficult and they were shaken out of their ease, it was going to be very difficult days. He's describing there in verse 12 as those difficult days would come upon them when the Assyrians would come in and squeeze them and circumstances would get hard and the city of Jerusalem was laid siege and people would find themselves struggling in ways that they hadn't struggled before. And now things weren't easy. Circumstances were hard. Times were tight. The pleasant fields weren't prospering. They were struggling for just circumstantial survival. He says, people of the land are experiencing thorns and briars. The happy homes and joyous cities are being forsaken. And the idea there is, again, not only times getting tough, but even finding that people would be turning away from them, abandoning their posts. He describes there those palaces that would be forsaken and the bustling city being deserted. And, you know, sometimes, folks, Sometimes those are some of the ways that God shakes the ease out of our circumstances. Sometimes it happens not just maybe in the physical things of, well, there's less money or things are hard. Sometimes the way God shakes the ease and deals with our complacency is more of what's described in the forsaking and the deserting of people. And sometimes that's what will happen is there'll be a desertion in a relationship, or someone will forsake you in a hard way, and all of a sudden, this ease and complacency or the departure of someone of your life that was very integral, all of a sudden, you're shaken to your core, and you realize, man, I was kind of living on autopilot at ease, and I was kind of getting complacent, and man, I am desperate for God's help now because things have transpired that make me incredibly desperate, but notice, if you would, how change would come. And this is the only way change comes. Look at me in verse 15. In fact, we'll use this as a landing and closing point for this evening. He says, things would get hard and difficult, verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness then becomes a fruitful field. Notice, restored back to fruitfulness. And the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Notice, it would not be some effort of the flesh that would bring forth change. They couldn't bring about a different circumstance, a different situation by just forcing harder, trying harder, striving, finding some human scheme or plan. He says the only way change is going to come, he says change would not come, verse 15, until, until until the Spirit of God was poured out from on high, that is from heaven, as a supernatural work of God happened, as the Spirit was poured out, God's supernatural power, when it descended upon his people from heaven, would cause change. It would cause something that was barren to now become fruitful, something that was struggling to now start thriving, something that had no life and looked like it was dead and dying, to spring back to life and to become abundant and thriving. You know, that is exactly what happens 
even in all of our lives, as it happened with Israel, as it will happen again. The Bible tells us that there will be even a great outpouring of God's Spirit upon Israel, even in the last days. Joel chapter 2, again, Ezekiel 36, 37, Zechariah chapter 12, describe that there is coming a time when God's Spirit will be poured out from on high upon the Jews in a mighty way that will cause something wonderful of a spiritual renewal and revival that will come upon them. And look, God is not a God of partiality. What we need to experience change in our lives personally, if things are dry and difficult and barren and unfruitful, what we need in our families, what we need as a family of believers, as a fellowship, as a church, is exactly what verse 15 describes. Until the Spirit of God is poured out from on high, change won't come. It can't come. Because we can't produce in the flesh what only God can do by His Spirit. That's what we should be seeking God for. Lord, would you pour out your Spirit from on high that your life, your fruitfulness would begin to come to pass. Let's stand together.